Good morning. It's Tuesday, March 16th. It's 8 a.m. This is show number 161. I'm your host, Crash. And I'm Gummo. And here we go. And good morning. Welcome to the show. This is uh, the 161st show we're doing on a Tuesday. Yeah, it's uh, a little new, slightly new. It's kind of new. Just for today. There is a reason we're doing it on Tuesday, of course. You know, it's just, uh, whew, wow, man. It all started uh, Friday around one in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it's been an interesting weekend slash evolution into the week. Um, yeah. And I, I think this is a like a holiday-based week, too, you know, in, in uh, different places of the world, too. So it's kind of strange. It is, yeah. I, I believe the official spring break uh, marathon kicks off uh, this week or last week. Yeah, here in America, the spring break. Yeah, so for uh, our listeners outside of the United States, uh, every year in March in the United States, we have something that we call spring break. And it's basically where all of the college kids in the United States, most of them, uh, they they are out of school for a week or two and uh, they uh, go and party and have fun and go to places that, where they're able to swim and enjoy themselves. It's just like a... You know, it's a thing. It's a gathering. It's like just hanging out with friends, you know, a lot of your friends. Yeah. And, you know, last year, of course, it was it was uh, mired in the entire coronavirus controversy. And yeah, still, you know, same thing this year. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people out there not obeying the, you know, we know I don't that you're right. So, uh, you know, happy spring break. I don't (laughs) know. Man, but yeah, it it all it all kicked off for us. What about the, uh, Friday afternoon when we uh, suddenly had the urge to fly out to L.A. and that's what we did. We flew out to L.A. for Saturday's uh, events. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I'll, I'll, always interesting when we fly out west. And you know, one of the things that uh, you know when we flew back, of course, and. We uh, we could not get a flight back into Jacksonville. You know, well, the flight would not land back in Jacksonville, so we had to fly into Savannah mm-hmm. Saturday. And boy, you know, I you know when Savannah isn't that close to Jacksonville, but it's far from Jacksonville it's, in a sense. Yeah, it's far enough to be an inconvenience. It is indeed, and you know, you know, I when we got off the plane i i had a rather than to drive all the way back to jacksonville you know of course we were just going to 
spend the evening uh, there in um, outside of Savannah in uh, Brunswick yeah. or something like that. And mm-hmm. well, at least that was the plan until, you know, uh, it was a last minute thing. Well, it really wasn't last minute, uh, but, you know, uh, you know, went to stay at a chain hotel you know and those are always fun yeah you know and it's it's always the last you know it's always my last resort staying in a chain hotel yeah and uh a boy it it you know my my fears were never were never deter- uh you know uh, my fears were not uh squashed in that regard because when i went to check in at said chain hotel you know, this is at like five thirty in the afternoon on a Saturday, and my check-in time was like at two or three. And right, and I'm like, hey, you know, what's going on with my room? And yada yada. And and they literally, you know, the 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 people just sh- looked at me, shrugged their shoulders, and I, and I said, well, you know, I'm a little tired. You know, I'd, I'd like to rest. And mm-hmm. you know, when will my room be available? And they honestly, they didn't know. And uh, I. <laughs> But yet everyone else was getting their rooms, checking in, oh, yeah. you know, eating food, you oh, yeah. know, having a joyous, grand old time, you know, with no masks, of course. Oh, yeah. Of course. And so, uh, you know, a, a few back and forths. Uh, and finally, I just said, you know, enough. I cancel my account, cancel every, you know, just forget it, cancel yeah. it. And I, I sent a message to their customer service support uh, section of their website, which of course uh, got the canned email response back. You know, we're sorry this, then we're sorry for that. And yeah, some automated shit mm-hmm. that was generated by you know whatever system they have in place. Yeah, yeah. And I just literally said, uh, "Do not contact me anymore, ever again." And yeah. so, folks, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, besides the obvious, right? Uh, these these chain hotels, you know, Hilton, Holiday Inn. You know all of these goofy names that you see; mm-hmm. they're all they're all really worthless. And if you can try to avoid them, uh, don't waste your money staying at what I call the craft macaroni and cheese <laughs> of life. Yeah, right. Because it's that's what it is, right? When you go in these these places, it's like walking into a, a Walmart, more or less. You know, it's mm. you know you're you're ushered in, you're ushered out, and you get your little bag of peanuts and you go away and then the next day you pay pay this really high you know exorbitant bill that yeah and and things there too are astronomical in price um you know just a soda you know something that would cost like a dollar fifty or two dollars at the you know the gas station that that shit's like five dollars seven dollars at a hotel i mean I, i understand that they have to make their money but i mean come on really like that that extreme of a markup on on simple products like even a pack of bubble gum that's 50 cents is like ridiculous three four five dollars yeah and you know i and i really really just feel weird when i go into these places to begin with and just you know yeah granted it's not you know the four seasons or anything but you you expect some level of service and so when that fails to you know produce it anything worth you know while yeah when people are just standing around with their their shoulders shrugging you know their hands up in the air like oh well yeah, we don't, I don't know we don't know yeah yeah neither do i and so uh <laughs> so we we promptly left and uh we we went on and uh Drove literally 12 miles uh, away and stayed in a lovely bed and breakfast Mm -hmm. and uh, had a wonderful evening of uh, great food, uh, quiet. 
100 uh, times better than than that the chain hotel yeah 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 Yeah, and and i didn't have to worry about catching covid because some karen didn't want to put her mask on exactly so it's uh it's feeling good about that and uh feeling good to be back here you know we've been we've been busy ever since we landed back here in jacksonville we've been working and um you know detecting lateral movement in specific networks that's always fun yeah it's always fun <laughs> you know especially when you deal when you're dealing with engineers you know that don't want to take advice or heed yeah. warnings or anything <laughs> you know folks if you know take take it from us you know if you have a, a you know a couple of hackers telling you that there's potential lateral movement and you and you dismiss those potential hackers or that potential lateral movement from those two hackers well that's on you and so uh, you know, you, you could take it with a grain of salt. I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. Uh, moving ahead. Anyhow, yeah, that was uh, that was our awful, atrocious experience staying at a chain hotel. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, you know, it just you, you you never you never know what to expect, and you know that's that's why I don't stay at these places, man. Yeah. You know, it's just. Uh, I mean, you know, some of them have decent uh, continental breakfast, though. At least. Yeah, they do. And, you know, I think we mentioned that on a show before. Like, folks, if you're on the run or something and you need a quick bite, you know, always swing in at one of these chain hotels first thing in the morning for their free continental breakfast. It's about the only thing they're good for. <laughs> it's pretty much the only thing they're pretty good for. That and causing a, um, a lot of grief. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey, we have a lot to get through today. And so I'm going to run through the news real quick. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do the news. Alrighty, and today in the news we have all kinds of fun shit like uh <laughs> oh my god hey you know what you know there's cameras everywhere in, in people's neighborhoods you know that yeah there's cameras everywhere not even just in neighborhoods i mean there's just cameras everywhere there are cameras everywhere and you know it whether or not you guys know it or not you know these cameras are connecting to somewhere doing something you know and you know, all of these cameras, you know, you have these doorbell cameras and, and yada, yada, yada. But, uh, you know, Georgia-based company called Flock has been quietly selling AI-powered cameras to police and community associations across the country that can spot and clock license plate data, it says, will help solve crimes and track down suspects. You know, uh, you know through a public records requests, request, you know, uh, <laughs> a reporter was a- able to recently obtain a massive cache of emails from nearly 20 police departments around the country de- detailing how you know products like Talon and other flock products are used by law enforcement agencies and it turns out that uh, they have been doing doing a lot of things like buying flock cameras and positioning them in parking lots of box store favorites like Burger Kings, Walmarts and Lowe's you know, pretty much in all locations over the U.S. because that's where that's you know that's what the United States is comprised of is Burger King, Walmart's, and Lowe's. <laughs> yeah, basically a shopping mall. Yeah, you know, plaza throwing a Costco here and there, and yeah. that's, that that pretty <laughs> much describes America uh, for you. you one know. giant shopping mall. Yeah, one giant sugary, fat-induced, oh, yeah. hyperbole sort of uh, country. Yeah, yeah, that's where we live. With tons of drama. <laughs> yeah. 
unnecessary. I'm, yeah. You know, folks, these types of uh, cameras and products uh, are dangerous. And, you know, I know in previous shows where I said, yeah, these are great. Well, hey, they are great. You know, all the, all of these cameras are great for security. And if that's what you choose to do, to let your allow your police department to access your camera, that's fine. That's cool. And I still say that's a that's a great thing. Yeah. However, right, there's always the flip sword, right? There's always, always the heads and tails of a coin. Yeah. And there's always multiple sides to a story and all that. Yeah. Indeed, there is. And so you should absolutely have the option to opt out of these uh, scenarios with these types of cloud provider camera situation deals. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not uh, it's it's <laughs> it's not a joke, you know, because, um, you know, there's there's many of these cameras. There's there's thousands, millions, millions of these cameras. And yeah, another example would be, you know, like last week, you know, there was a um, there was this big thing going on around uh, this camera ma manufacturer uh, named Verkata, and uh, basically, uh, Verkata was um, you know, compromised, hacked. I don't think they were specifically hacked. I believe a kid uh, in Sweden or where was this kid at? Uh, I think it was in Sweden. Something like that. Just Something Europe, like that. Yeah, Europe and in general, I believe. Somewhere in Europe, right? The kid broke into the Verkatas uh, cyber cameras and and you know or accessed it or whatever. Didn't and he just the Google Dorkum? Huh? Didn't he just Google Dorkum? I think so. Yeah. 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 But and still, it just shows a misconfiguration in the devices themselves and and with default credentials. Mm -hmm. And he and the 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 hacker who actually claimed responsibility for breaking into um, uh, you know all of these cameras, uh, you know, found out that these cameras from Verkata were employed in such places, you know, like they were with you know, at companies like Tesla, Cloudflare, hospitals, jails, schools, all sorts of organizations in people's homes, etc. Yeah, and uh, you know, long story short, you know. Uh, you know, his apartment was raided the, the, by the local police. They came and seized all of his equipment. And, of course. Um, yeah. And to to be uh, determined on uh, his fate, on how that all ends. Uh, so, it, the, you know, that's, that's another lesson to you guys. Uh, if you are using cameras out there, you know... <laughs> Make sure, you know, make sure that they're, you know, do the best diligence you can. You know, you're never going to be 100% on the, you know, the type of camera you get. You know, has this camera been hacked before you buy? But, you know, it, you know, when you do purchase a camera system, you know, in, ensure that you're installing it in the, in the proper method and using proper methods for, you know, you, the, your most basic uh, sense of privacy when you're using these things. Yeah, please read the directions on how to configure such devices <laughs> because honestly, it's it's really the number one thing that goes wrong with these camera systems is that people will plug them in, they'll connect them, and that'll be that. They won't, you know, use the the configuration wizards or manuals or commands or any any anything really in order to configure them in a secure manner. Which most of the time, all they really need is a new password so you yeah. know and it really doesn't take that long i mean if you have enough time to plug in the the thing to the power outlet and ethernet which or 
to connect it to wireless, which most of these are connected to, then you more than likely have time to connect to their web panel and change their passwords. Uh, that's sound advice, folks, and you should heat it from crash because that's what you should do when you have these cameras. So, uh, hey, you know, folks, uh, I, you know, I'm sure by now, if you do live in the United States, you, uh, everyone knows who Mike Lindell is. Do you know who Mike Lindell is? Isn't that the Mike uh, My Pillow guy? It is the My Pillow guy. It is the My Pillow guy, and you know what he's doing? He's in jail, I believe, isn't he? Not yet, but he is making his own social network, and it and it just it, it's just awful. He goes on to say that. Uh, that his his new social media platform, uh, pronounced Vocal, spelled V-O-C-L, okay. uh, it launches soon, and Jack Dorsey and Mr. Google will be a thing of the past. Okay. It's <laughs> a pretty damn bold statement. But. Yeah, you know, so uh, I, apparently the MyPillow CEO uh, has created a social network called Vocal, and he wants it to be a place where everyone can go and spew hate and all of that fun stuff. On top of the fact that he's also facing a $1.3 billion lawsuit over elections conspiracies. Yeah. You know, <laughs> how did he even make it into the news? I don't know, but that is interesting, I guess. But uh, unless the dude has some superior algorithms or something cool, mm -hmm. you know, that, that platform isn't going to last too long. Yeah, that it, it it won't last at all actually. Yeah. So it's you know just but I thought I thought we'd bring that up you know because you know better watch out Mr. Google. Yeah, I mean it's a knee slapper. <laughs> that's all right. Hey, you know what? Do you have an iPhone? I don't have an iPhone. Oh well. You well, I used to. You know, I I recently you know got rid of it. You know, just security though. Did you know that you could take? Did you know you could take a full page screenshot on your iPod of a web page? Yeah. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, I swear I didn't know that. Yeah, it's... Uh, I had no idea. You know you know how to do it? Uh, well, I want you to enlighten me. Sure. Uh, well, what you want to do is you want to go to your webpage, right? You open up Safari, go to your webpage. And when you go to that webpage, you just simply um, snap away. You know, press the lock button and the volume up button at the same time. And uh, it, it will actually take uh, screen grabs of uh, the entire web page. Once you see the preview, click on it, and you'll be taken to a screen that gives you uh, image editing abilities. And you'll have the option to blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, but the, uh, the default screenshot option is screen. But to the right of that, you'll see something that says full page option. You know, go ahead and select full page option to transform your regular screenshot into a full page screenshot. Then use the slider on the right side of your screen to navigate the length of your screenshot web page. You know, that's good information because everybody is on their iPhone these days and they always want to take a screenshot of a web page, but they don't know how. So now you know how. What about Android? You know, there's <laughs> millions of people on Android. Well, what about Android? I don't know. What's going on with Android? Oh, I mean, how do you take a full screenshot? I have no idea, <laughs> but I got another iPhone trick for you. Ah. Hey, you know, your iPhone always keeps track of where you go, even if you think you've got everything turned off. You know, according to Apple, the, the, fe the feature uh, is built in and baked into most uh, iPhones. And, you know, you can actually turn this off. If you want to see where your location, if you want to really see what I'm talking about, 
go to the settings uh, in, in your uh, iPhone, then open up the privacy section, click on location services at the top of your screen, then scroll to the bottom and click system services. Then click uh, or tap uh, on significant locations and you'll be asked for your passcode or to use face ID. Once you do that, there you will see a list of all the cities and towns you've been to and you can click to re click on them to actually reveal the locations within those city and cities and towns. You know, so if you want to turn this service off, you need to be on the you need to be on top of shit, right? But you also need to be on the significant location section and turn the green toggle at the top off and it'll turn off significant locations. So even though you don't think you're being tracked, you're still being tracked. And so you have to untrack the tracking devices that track you. Otherwise you'll get tracked. Or you can just jailbreak, use custom firmware and turn all that shit off. Or you can get an iPod touch or an iPad. We're just not using any digital devices whatsoever. Well, you know, you know that'd be even better. Yeah, and it, you know, and it was, um, it, it was in Switzerland, by the way, where the uh, kid got. Uh, oh yeah, the uh, arrested yeah. for the ricotta thing. Yeah, I didn't know if it was Sweden or so. You know, I, I'm supposed to send some barbecue sauce to uh, one of the one of my Twitter friends, and I haven't gotten around to that yet. So I will. <sighs> and uh, lastly, but not leastly because that's all the time we have. Uh, you know, the, your favorite beer uh, manufacturer, the people who bring you the fine beer Coors and Coors Light and all of that, uh, they were recently uh, also, they were also recently attacked and basically, um, you know, they brought the entire company to a, a grinding halt. Cryptoware? Uh, I'm not, yeah, let's see. Do, 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 do. Yeah, it was a little bit of crypto wear and, uh, not really sure how they got through it or over it, or if not, there are, they are still in the process of that, but you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not going away folks. It's definitely not going away. And, you know, and when I say it's not going away, you know, uh, you know, criminals aren't going away. All right. Uh, you know, so we, <laughs> Oh man, I just can't get over the whole chain hotel thing uh, Saturday. It just really, really just left a. It's all right. Yeah, right. So, hey, you know what? You know, as a kid growing up, you know, I used to listen to pirate radio stations. You know what a pirate radio station is, right? Yeah. Um, it's really just a radio station that transmits on a frequency unauthorized. That's right. It, it's exactly what it is. It's a pirate, a pirate radio station is a radio station that broadcasts without a valid license. And so, you know, in some cases, radio stations are considered legal where the signal is transmitted, but illegal where the signals are received, especially when the signals cross a national boundary or this sort of boundary. Honestly, all that's bullshit. <laughs> I mean, you can't control airspace. It's the most ridiculous thing. It's like controlling a planet. You can't control a planet, man. I mean, I guess technically you can if you threaten everyone with nukes and this, that, and the <laughs> other, if you start using the air, but... Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. You got radio waves propagating through space and time and this, that, and the other all the time. So, I mean, 
personally, I mean, I know this is all federal regulation and stuff. And of course, you know, living on the planet, you got to follow rules. But still, I mean, you're telling me that you can't broadcast on a frequency unless you have a piece of paper. That's well, like that's like being in school and saying that, hey, you, you have to solve this math equation this specific way. And if you solve it another way, even if it's correct and you show your work, you still have to do it this way because this is the way we we do it. It's kind of preposterous, to be honest. It's absolutely preposterous. And, and we have an agency, a federal government agency called the Federal Communications Commission, who, who actually has done nothing for years and decades and almost, uh, almost uh, an entire century. Right. But uh, at one point, the Federal Communications Commission was a very uh, upstanding agency. You know, they had great, you know, everything. But uh, now the FCC is, uh, is only... It, well, it's not even what it used to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so they are the enforcement uh, regulatory arm of, uh, you know, that uh, whole getting a license to broadcast thing. And, you know, it's, yeah, I kind of agree. You know, I kind of agree with you there, you know, just because I'm, you know, I'm a legitimate ham operator. Yeah. But, you know, the... Um, the whole number station thing uh, that, you know, has been around for years and years, that's always intrigued people, right? You know, there's everywhere on the internet, you know, number stations, what are these? And, and we all, know, you know, if, folks, if you don't know what a number station is, a number station is basically a shortwave radio characterized by, uh, you know, a, a string of formatted numbers and letters. And, uh, you know, it's always been believed that these are intelligence officers in the field with their one-time pads decoding the messages from, uh, you know, the mothership. And so... Or spies with their secret keys. <laughs> yeah, right. And the whole... The whole um, and you know that's that's part of the entire radio spectrum you know there's you, for years for millennia for for millennia oh, on top of millennia on top of millennia and then you compound that by 300 and then you have 10,000 more millennias well you know radio waves have been here with us radio it's, waves are everywhere radio waves are everywhere they're and literally being transmitted from planets stars you, you name it it's out there it's it's broadcasting some sort of radio the earth itself is broadcasting rf waves all the time you're right and everything broadcasts rf and receives rf even your little little key fob in your you know to get in your car and start it and yep. roll your windows up and down yeah. that all everything folks all of this is done by rf radio frequencies and, you know, there's, and well, you know, it, for years, right, you had agencies like the FCC who make you obtain a license so you can buy, a, you know, a $15,000 base band, yeah. you know, box to just use three or four channels on. Yeah. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you those days are over. Well, not the FCC, you know, because they, they um, still have to stick around. But yeah, but I mean, the day, <laughs> the days of being regulated are kind of over in a way. And we're going to tell you how you can get past that regulation right here. There's there's something. So for years and years and years, you know, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, I, I had the old 23 channel uh, Navajo uh, Citizens Band base stations, uh, you know, that sat on you know my desk, and I had the gigantic. Um, yeah, it was a big device. You know, it had to have some sort of you know desk or table to yep. put it on. Linear it, amplifier, all of that stuff takes it, up a, a ton of room, a ton of power. <laughs> it does. And you know, folks, there's there there is the modern equivalent of all of that, and we I want to introduce you to it, and it's called software defined radio. And let me tell you, folks, software defined radio is a communication system 
where the components that have been traditionally implemented in hardware, you know, the amps, the modulators, the detectors, the filters, all, you know, everything that is involved in the radio are instead implemented by means of software on a personal computer or an embedded system. So, you know, that's, it basically, it, it modernizes the radio waves from yesteryear, right? Yeah. And, you know, of course, you and I, we have been doing, uh, you and I, we did a hard technical dive over it uh, on Sunday, yeah. I believe. And we want you know, because we want, we like to know what we're talking about. Of course. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, folks, SDR is, that's what it's called for short, right? Software defined radio. SDR is something that I must no, should I must? Yes, so shall I. Mm -hmm. I must encourage you to at least look into it, right? Because software-defined radio has more opportunities than the internet. Mm. I guarantee you that. Yeah, and you know you've got these you've got these internet services like uh, uh, Starlink and HughesNet, and then you know of course the people getting pillaged and robbed all, every day by you know traditional internet providers like Comcast. And, yeah god knows who else yeah you know with a little bit of clever uh with a little bit of clever thinking and a little bit of light ingenuity you can actually take and use a software defined radio for internet access yes and it is possible considering that these devices which are depending on what kind you get you know may only be a hundred bucks and what's cool is they go all the way up to, again depending on the device up to perhaps six or higher gigahertz that's correct and mo and and spread spectrum and ultra wideband techniques allow several several transmitters to transmit in the same place or on the same frequency with very little interference typically combined with one or more error detection and correction techniques to fix all the errors caused by that specific interference. Yeah. You know, so software-defined radio uh, is sort of a very amazing technology. Uh, and again, it's nothing new. It's just a reworking of something that's very old. Yeah. And, it, you know, with, uh, with, with as little as $20, folks, you can go out there and grab yourself an SDR USB stick Mm -hmm. connect a simple dipole antenna to that and guess what you have a short wave radio yep you have a long wave radio you can listen to international space station communications you can listen to encrypted communications you can decrypt and communicate matter of fact you know what i'll tell you what you can look and see and hear every band on the rf spectrum with software defined radio yeah and typically depending on the size of the device you can get the bigger devices you know 50 to 100 bucks and they usually have an lcd screen embedded and built in to them so you can actually again visualize the frequencies and spectrum um that you're you're capturing or transmitting or w what have you mm -hmm. and it's very cool because you can actually see the intensity of the waveform and and everything that's going on yeah, and you know, it, and it's interesting that you said you, that you can see the waveform because that's that's what a lot of uh, the old ICOM uh, high-end ham systems used to use was. You know, they would have these spectrum analyzers that, you know, like you know, the, your average person or hacker cannot afford these, uh, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollar, you know, systems. Yeah, they're absurdly expensive. Well, folks, you could get the same thing for thirty-eight dollars and ninety-nine cent, as low as that. 
with a 1 kilohertz to 1.7 gigahertz full band UVHF RTL SDR USB. Now, I'm not going to tell you where you can buy them because I, I just encourage you to just, you know, go and search the, the World Wide Web and yeah. search for software to find radios and find the radio that you want to play around with because there's so many choices. There's transceivers, there's yeah. receivers. Yeah, half duplex, full duplex, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's crazy. It's cool. It's the whole cool. nine yard, you know, and, and yeah, and I, you know, you and I, we've, we've been doing such a technical dive into SDR. It's just amazing that we're, we're even here talking this morning because yeah you know this morning we I, I was actually playing around with you know i got one of the old raspberry pies out of the uh the pie box there mm -hmm. and you know i was um i was actually looking at uh how to build uh, a a working ham transceiver with an rtl sdr raspberry pi and arpex right so you know Folks, for something as uh, minuscule as a Raspberry Pi, you can turn a Raspberry Pi into an SDR if that's what you want to do. But you know, personally, you know, I, I like buying I, I like buying the SDR uh, uh, dongles, and uh, yeah. you know, that way I can define my own baseband and, and yeah. create my own antenna link. One last thing before we get off of S before we leave you with more SDR fun is that you, when you are playing around with uh, shortwave, long-wave radios or any type of radio, be sure that you do your math and, and understand that you need the proper antenna for your SDR radio. And if you're transmitting with one of these radios, be sure to hook the antenna up first. Right. If the antenna is, yeah, if the antenna is improperly or is in an improper length and you're giving enough power, you can damage your equipment. That's uh, right. Because the, the wave that you're trying to broadcast, um, I believe this is specifically when you're uh, sending a signal, right? Yeah, so, right. So you have you have a, a, a basically a reflection of that signal that you're trying to send, and it comes back to your transceiver and can damage the transceiver um, if your configuration isn't proper. That's right. And you know it's and, and there's so many there's there that that's that's the best advice we can give you for SDR folks is when when just like Crash said when when you when you are experimenting with with an SDR or any type of transmission device. Be sure to hook the antenna up before you even plug it into power. It's always a wise thing to do. Hey, you know what, it, it, folks? If you've ever wanted to communicate with uh, a NASA space probe, or uh, you, you know, you want to, uh, you know, keep, keep an eye on you know radar traffic, or if you want to listen to the Voyager space probes, or even transmit to them, I you can with an SDR. You, I believe you can really just get any signal from anything up there. So I mean, you know. <laughs> you can. You can with an SDR. You can you can pick up any signal out there, right. including the remote key fob for your new car. <laughs> Just uh, some food for thought. Hey, folks! I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to share more with you about SDR and how to actually hack into the wireless world with SDR. And so uh, it's from a few years ago, but it's still valid. So check it out. It's uh, hacking the wireless world with software defined radio. And we'll be back after the. Uh, the you know. We'll be back. Uh, my name is Balint Sieber. Thank you very much for, for coming this afternoon. I'd like to give you a bit of a whirlwind tour uh, of all the wonderful and interesting things you can do with software-defined radio. I, um, I'm an application specialist slash SDR evangelist for Edis Research. Um, we're based in, in the Bay Area in California, 
and um, we make some really cool software-defined radio equipment. Um, and I'd like to, to demonstrate some of it uh, for you here today. So just a quick uh, survey of the audience. Can you put your hand up if, if you've played with SDRs before? All right, great. Have any of you actually brought one of you, uh, one of them here with you today, like uh, you know, a usurp or an RTL dongle or anything like that? Because I'm transmitting stuff. I was hoping at least one person might be able to receive it and prove that I'm not, not faking it. Yeah, maybe one or two people. All right. Uh, well, if you wanted to actually set up your receiver and tune to 915 megahertz, then you might see something interesting there, and I'll, I'll show you uh, a little later on. What, what that might be. Uh, in addition, um, I also have set up uh, a GSM network here. So if you get your unlocked phone and you scan for a network, you might see one that does not belong. Um, and that's what I was running the log for up here. Um, so if you just want to set your phone to scan, it's completely vanilla install, so it won't do anything nefarious to your telephone. Trust me. Um, Uh, but um, so I really love software-defined radio. Um, I love the fact that the radio spectrum is this is this incredible space that contains so many different sorts of signals, um, and you know I really love exploring it and trying to reverse engineer those signals. Um, if you're congregating at the back, please please come in. Don't um, don't be afraid. There are some empty seats down the front here. Get comfy. <clears throat> Um, I was in Italy early this year. Um, you can see these are some uh, USRP B200s there I have. just wanted to get a nice photo. Um, I was, I was t teaching some labs to these, um, these participants, students from some developing nations, and I guess a pattern with me is wherever I go, some, for some reason the police magically know I'm there and turn up. So in that case, it was the uh, Carabinieri. Uh, but before I sort of get into the meat of it, I want you to sort of transport yourself back um, 30 odd years. Who's heard of this, this space probe ISEE3? A couple of people. All right. This was a space probe called the International Sun Earth Explorer. It was launched um, with two other probes and it was launched in 1978. So just think back where you were and what you were doing around about August 12, 1978. Uh, it was one of the first space probes to be put um, into certain orbits. It was put into a heliocentric orbit around the sun. And it was created to study the interaction between the solar wind and the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, it had some firsts. It was the first one in this halo orbit at this L1 Lagrange point. It's a special point between the Sun and the Earth where the um, gravitational forces are such that the probe will get drawn along as the Earth orbits the Sun. And it was also the first probe to pass through the tail of a comet. Um, every, every other nation had their probe on the way to, to visit um, a comet and of course the US wanted to beat everybody so they sent ISEE3 out to meet this, this other one. And um, if you have a look here, this is sort of a, an illustration of the crazy orbital mechanics that they had designed for this, this probe to fly through. Initially it would go out to this L1 point orbit there, go out and meet the comet, and then at some point it was destined to return to our neck of the woods. So if you actually look at this on a video, um, you'll see that I've edited this and sped it up a little bit. But um, you can see that the, this is the Earth-Sun reference frame. So the Earth is always here at the center, speed it up, the Moon's going around there, and then it was shot out to this L1 point. They do some lunar flybys, 
and then you can see it does the final flyby and then goes out with the uh, increased energy that it has into orbit around the, the sun. Um, and it was an interesting space probe because it was spin stabilized, it had a lot of science instruments on board to collect scientific data, and it had some radio antennas so that it could uh, send this data back to Earth along with all these thrusters so that its orbit um, and trajectory could be controlled. The telemetry would be sent back down, and this is apparently a screenshot of an old telemetry screen at the NASA um, Deep Space Network stations to give you an idea of this sort of encoded ASCII text meaning particular things about the propulsion system. Uh, and then as it went on its, its merry way around the sun, you can see there that um, it's sort of tracking the Earth and it's slowly catching up, slowly catching up until, what do you know, there's the Earth, it's getting closer and closer and closer. Um, and then you can call that more or less the present day if you look at the date in the bottom left hand, hand corner. So just, just keep in mind that throughout all this sort of SDR experimentation, I'll show you the space probe has slowly been, actually pretty quickly been moving through the void. So I'd like to show you what you can do, have a bit of fun with restaurant pages, the radio data service, and it, specifically its traffic message channel, and uh, primary surveillance radar at, at airports, RFID systems, and I might come back to the space probe. So a lot of this is, is done with sort of open source software, and particularly this open source software defined radio framework or uh, DSP framework called GNU Radio. It's absolutely fantastic. Very vibrant community. Before I go on, this is actually a picture of the radio spectrum and a, and a particular frequency band. Any guesses to what this might be? Don't be shy, anyone. Except for maybe Matthew, because I reckon he already knows. One guess, come on, anyone, yes. Not quite, very close, that, that might be coming up. Someone else? I'll give you a clue, I already talked about it. Maybe mobile, cellular, yes? No, not quite. Um, but this is actually a whole bunch of different protocols on the, on the cellular band. So this is broader band CDMA. Right in the middle there you have GSM, it's much narrower, 200 kilohertz channels. And then this, this very um, strong constant one here is probably the broadcast control channel from a cell. And then you can see the traffic just to the left of it. And what's interesting here is this FFT, this waterfall is sped up so, so quickly, you basically imagine time on the vertical and frequency on the horizontal. You can see these gaps there, and those gaps are the frequency correction bursts that the cell sends out so that your phone can discipline its internal oscillator to match uh, that of the cell. And so the cool thing is there are so many incredible tools now that you can run to really dive down and, and dig into these signals and reveal these little properties that you wouldn't normally see. Uh, so here's an example. Did I accidentally... Oh, this is the other, other point that I wanted to make is with modern hardware and the incredible speed of, of computers nowadays, you can suck in a huge amount of data and that equates to an enormous amount of bandwidth. So this is actually 50 megahertz worth of bandwidth on this screen. And um, th this is you know, an enormous amount compared to where we were even just a few years ago. We have high bandwidth interfaces like USB 3, 10 gigabit ethernet. So you can pull in a, a huge amount. <clears throat> and this is, this is looking at um, that mobile uh, cellular band again. Uh, this is actually a video zooming in on what I was just talking about with the GSM um, band. And you can see here, these are the, the broadcast control channels. And every so often you can see these 
these lines, and that line is a pure unmodulated sine wave that your phone uses to discipline its oscillator. And then you've got a bunch of traffic there, which is probably the downlink as the, the cell is sending data to the subscribers. Um, so on the note of GSM, um, I've actually set up uh, a GSM base station right here sitting on this chair. This is running OpenBTS. It's an open source 2G implementation. Um, it's actually running on some hardware that we haven't publicly released yet, but it, it'll ha be happening soon. The entire base station is running on that tiny little little board there. You can feel free to come up um, at the end and, and have a quick look. But if you pull out your mobile phone and you've got a manual network selection, you might see a, a network that you wouldn't expect in this part of the world. You can log on there. And has anybody tried this yet? Oh, great, a couple of people. And then did you get a text saying, welcome your IMSI is, is this? Yeah, cool. So what, what you can do now is text back on to 101 a four-digit telephone number that you want, okay? And that will assign you that number on the, on the mobile phone network. Now, I have my phone here, which is already on there. And if you want to make any special requests during the presentation or you just want to send me a text or, you know, call me, whatever, um, completely against what you're normally advised to do with mobile phones during the presentation, then, um, then feel free. My telephone number on here is two... Oh. Oh, because I've got it up there, right? Yeah, me. Hello? Who, who's this? Hello? Ah, oh, there we go. Great. So it works. And, and so the cool thing is that, that this entire interaction is using normal consumer devices and an open source uh, implementation running on that tiny, tiny little thing there. So if I, now that we've got it working, this is actually asterisk, so it's a software-based um, routing, call routing system. It, it's it's um, a soft switch. So does somebody else want to call me again? Try, try, anybody? Two one zero three. So when you actually dial, you can see that the call. This is in verbose logging mode. So when something happens, you'll see some activity there. Anyone? Oh, there we go. Did you see stuff happening? Yeah. So that's nine 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 nine. So that's um, that's that's working nicely. And then here, uh, this is actually the verbose output of OpenBTS. So this is constantly sent. You know, logging the information that's being sent to and from. The, um, the mobile handsets, which is kind of cool. So that's, that's working nice. And you've got these other numbers here if you want to get the time or you want to get the echo test service or whatever, then, then you can dial those. And I'll leave that running so you can dial them. If you get bored of me blathering on, you can just, just try that. What's that? Well, the hotline is 2103, that's me. Um, so this is actually looking at a different part of the spectrum now. This is the 400 megahertz band where you often have a lot of utilities and trunking control channels for um, fleet comms and so on. Uh, and what's interesting here is that this is, actually, uh, this is actually 100 megahertz worth of bandwidth actually. So you can see here there's an awful lot of activity, bursts going on and so on. So that's, that's actually pulling in twice the bandwidth now. And then if you really want to go crazy, you can even pull in 200 megahertz worth of bandwidth, really 120 megahertz of usable RF bandwidth. And if you want to kick it old school, then you can use this ASCII art DFT instead of using all the, you know, the beautiful fancy graphics. Um, you know, say if you're on a console and you're, you're SSHing in somewhere and you can't look at, at, at nice accelerated graphics, you can use you know, ASCII art. Um, and, and this is actually piping the data over 10 gigabit Ethernet to a, to a host from... Um, this is the, uh, the USERP, which is the X300. 
Um, and then apart from pulling in data from one particular spot, there's also the notion of spectrum monitoring, but over a spatial area. So you see how spectrum usage can change as you move around. This is obviously on a much smaller scale, but this is Las Vegas, and I was driving around with one of these in the car. If you want to try and spot the car that I might be driving around in, then it might be the one with all the antennas coming out of the, the side of the roof. Those are the actual RF ones, and they're the GPS ones that log the position. So if you open the door, you can see you've got the radios there hooked up to my laptop. The radios themselves actually, you can also put a GPS module in there, so as you are actually streaming the data in, you can uh, stamp with a location where the recording happened. And so you can build up these very wideband stitch spectrums, as I like to call it. This is looking at a very wide portion of the, the cell band again, a very wide portion of the 2.4 gigahertz ISM band. So as you drive around, you can collect these and see how the strengths change and so on and use it for planning and, and, and so on. So there's all sorts of things you can do. So the experiments that I'm going to show you um, were primarily done with one of these. Um, I've, got, I've got one happening here and the other one's transmitting down there. Uh, it's a USA B200 or B210. It's um, USB 3.0, which is really cool because it's bus powered. You don't need external power. You can sample up to 56 megahertz worth of bandwidth, which is huge. And you can tune anywhere from 70 megahertz to 60 gigahertz. So you have a huge frequency range to play with as well. So the first thing I want to look at is restaurant pages. Um, and you probably all know these. You go to a restaurant, you place your order, you're given the little, little disc that will light up when your order is ready. Then you go and collect it. So if you consider that the order and the collection rate from the kitchen should be around about the same, unless, of course, somehow they all happen to go off at the same time. Um, there are a number of different ways you can find the frequency out. You can actually just scan with one of these devices. You can look at the back of one of the pages, and often it's actually written there. Or you can look up on your local regulatory frequency um, database what, what frequency has been licensed to the system. So if you were to actually look at it on the spectrum, you'll see there. This is actually a page going out from the, from the kitchen to someone's pager and it would have just lit, light, um, you know, lighted up the, the, the device. By the way, I forgot to say that um, apart from just making telephone calls on this on the system, you can, um, you can send texts as well. And I also forgot to mention, once you have registered a number, shout it out so that you know, people can text amongst yourselves. So you, and you, then you don't have to pay, it's free texting. How good is that? Um, so that's, that's that. And so if you were to actually look at these pager signals on a waterfall like this, it reveals the first step um, of, of some parameters that you need to demodulate the signal in its entirety. So the first thing you'll notice is that this is frequency shift keying, where the, the frequency on the spectrum will change between two points, and that will indicate whether it's a, a 1 or a 0. And then you can use that to demodulate it and decode and get your raw ones and zeros and then try and make sense of it. But what you'll notice here is that there is no long strings of ones or zeros. There are many, many transitions here, and that tells you something about the line encoding of this particular data. So that's, that's a, a very important clue. Um, in GNU Radio, you can create these things called flow graphs, which are basically uh, at the highest level using this graphical user uh, graphical um, development environment where you can put blocks down and then connect them up. And then it's essentially sending the signal through a bunch of different blocks that perform different DSP operations on those blocks. From you know, filtering at the high level all the way down to sort of manipulating the raw ones and zeros. So in this particular graph, flow graph, I've put some blocks in there that will help with analyzing this page of signal. 
And the first step, or the, the second step after actually recording it, is that you do what's called channel selection. So here it's very obvious, this is the noise floor, and then we have a very, very strong pager signal that's shown up here. So we select that channel, we, and then we extract that, and move it to what's known as our baseband, so to the center of the dial essentially, so that we can then continue working on it. And this particular block you would use there, the frequency translating FIR filter. Once it's actually at the center of the dial, you can see how here it was off to the side on the spectrum, but now it's at zero. And then this is zoomed in. So this is looking at, this is, this is zoomed into this signal here. You can see that because it's frequency shifting and it's moving between two frequencies, you can see these two peaks. And then you determine what the deviation is. So how far out from zero they go. And then once you actually know that deviation, you can do this quadrature demodulation, which is like, demodulating an FM signal, like a, you know, your broadcast FM or what have you, but this is a very simple version. And then once you've got your deviation, you get this very nice time domain plot where your deviation to one side or the other will be shown as one or negative one. And this is actually that, that, that raw signal there. And that's simply done with this quadrature demodulation block. The next step is then determining how quickly that data is moving through the system. The board rate, the symbol rate, we don't know that, we can, but we can measure it with some tricks. And if you hook up um, some blocks in a very simple fashion to do what's called cyclostationary analysis, then you can determine by doing a, a fast Fourier transform of the signal, uh, of a, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, but the last step is this fast Fourier transform, and you look at the peaks, and the first peak the largest peak there will tell you the board rate of your signal. So it's really cool. You can put your signal in and it'll give you a number as to how quickly the transitions are happening. And then it just prints it out there. So now we know the deviation, we know that it's frequency shifting, we know how quickly the bits are coming. And then what we can do is do clock recovery. And this takes our original signal and changes it into raw ones and zeros. And you can see them here. This is actually deviating between 1 and negative 1, and we can slice this. So anything above the 0 we'll call a 1, anything below the 0 line, the center line, we'll call a, 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 a 0 bit. And you can tell if it's working because when you go from this line plot to the dot plot, you can see the blue, there's this great separation on either side of the center line. Does everyone, everyone see that? So if you've got this good separation, it means that your board rate is calculated correctly and the recovery algorithm is actually sampling your signal at the right time. So this is really good. And then I was lying a little bit before the flow graph uh, is a little bit more complicated. You can see I've got disabled blocks there. It's really nice for rapidly prototyping stuff. I'm, I'm absolutely terrible in making clean flow graphs, so you'll have to excuse me. Um, but that's, that's a sort of a hint of what, what mine tend to look like. Um, then once you've actually got those raw ones and zeros out of the system, it's try time to actually interpret them and extract some information that we can understand. This is what it looks like originally. And remember how I was saying there are lots of transitions? Uh, it helps clock recovery at the receiver. And it looks like it might be Manchester encoded. So if we turn on Manchester encoding, which means that every pair of bits will actually equate to a data bit. So if it's zero, 01, then that'll turn into a zero. If it's a one zero, then that'll turn into a one. It's a way of having these transitions uh, turn into basically half a number of bits. So if you do that, then you end up with half the number of bits, but then it looks like we have some proper data here because we have long sequences of zeros, for example. 
And looks like at the beginning we have these um, transitions again that also helps as a synchronization byte. So when a receiver is listening, it listens for a known pattern. And when it hears that known pattern, it thinks, oh, okay, there's actually a packet happening here. I'm going to listen for the rest of it. Um, and we can test whether it's Manchester by moving all of the bits down by one. And if the Manchester uh, transitions don't happen per the spec, then you get these violations, as they're called, and they're highlighted in red. So it's, a, it's basically a quick way of verifying that, that we have the, um, the line encoding down pat. If you look at it correctly, then you can compare multiple transmissions and then highlight in green the differences between the bits. So we're going to page one person with one pager ID and we're going to page someone else with a different ID. And we might be able to then have a clue as to where that ID is encoded in our mystery packet. Because remember, this is all going completely blind. We have no idea how the protocol works. So once you actually get a page like this one, then it becomes clear that 12 is encoded in that byte. The last byte there is some checksum. You, I went through a whole bunch of CRC um, algorithms, none of them matched. Turned out to be a really simple sum over the entire packet mod 255, and it matched. So that's the decoding process. What about making an encoder? Well, you can construct the packet, you've got your preamble for the synchronization, you've got this magic header, you've got the pager number and the checksum, and then you do some other things in that flow graph to prepare it so that it will be ready to transmit out of these radios. This is what the flow graph for that actually looks like. You generate your pager packet in there, you interpolate, um, then you frequency modulate it, then you resample for the USRP, and then you send it out. So when you actually send it, I'm going to page there, page ID 0, and you can see a very similar waveform to the one that we received, and then it, it goes out into the spectrum there. Um, if, this is, if you actually look at it in the same way, then this looks remarkably like the signal that we received. So this is a hint, well, maybe things are working. Uh, and this is, was a little test that I did. I went there one morning when I thought I had the, the program working nicely, put the number in, and there you go. Uh, now, Matt Edis founded Edis Research. That's my boss. He's sitting right there. I didn't tell anybody that I had the system working. And what I did is I got um, I set it up on my laptop and I went in because I pretended that I had to make a phone call. But I actually had ad hoc Wi-Fi network running between my laptop and my phone and an XMLR PC client on my phone so I could control the paging system. So I put in his pager number and he thought his food was ready. So he went up to the kitchen and mayhem. The poor girl, they didn't know what was going on. I have officially been trolled. <laughs> so he was officially trolled. Um, and, and I added this little feature here, which is the slider. So, you know, I didn't actually ever use this, but if you were to click and then you held down the right arrow on your keyboard, it would go through every single pager combination. And you can imagine how the kitchen would respond to that. So that's, that's one system that was reverse engineered from scratch. There's another system that uses the old POCSAG pager system that was used with the old beepers. And you can very easily get into that um, using GR POCSAG. There are a lot of out-of-tree modules available for GNU Radio. So you download GNU Radio and then you can download the source code to these out-of-tree modules, compile them in, and then gain access to additional functionality. And in this case, this one will decode this POCSAG protocol. Um, and the flow graph there, um, but essentially GRPOXAG gives you this POXAG decoder. And that's an example of the output in the console. So these are all the frames that come out. 
um, as it's listening over the air at this other restaurant. And if we look, were to look at one particular packet, you've got a lot of idle frames, you've got the address, and you've got this data that encodes what the pager should actually do. In this case, it'll just light up and say that your food is ready. Um, and the address is encoded in, in here. Um, what's interesting about POCSAG is that the slot in which your address actually fits uh, is very important because those last three bits are actually the slot number divided by two. So this is very clever because POCSAG, you have the pager, it's running on a battery, and if it hears the sync word, then the radio address encoded in your own unit will actually tell you what address you're in. So you know the last three bits and therefore you know what slot you expect your data to be in. So the radio can actually t remain off for all of the other slots because your data can't possibly be in there. It's a really nice little power saving trick. But in this case, um, you use that then to create your own pager frame so that you put the data in the correct slot for the pager that you want to actually address. You put in the idols, you put in the action, and then you apply the error correcting code to each of the slots per the spec. And so you can get 46, you can see it going out there. I went to lunch with my colleague. This goes off and to test we'll out this different system. 39, and then we'll do 56, and then we'll do 83. I think you might be able to hear them going And then 82. And 78. Yeah, little little automated voices, the page is saying, your order is ready. What's the point? What's the point? <laughs> and that's that's my dear colleague. He, he said, what's about the point? What about 56? What about 56? And that's just stuck at the office. So that's the in-joke. Whenever something goes wrong or we don't know what's happening at the office, we just throw our hands up and say, what's the point? Um, and then th the third system is Zigbee, which is a 2.4 gigahertz um, protocol. This page is really interesting because it, the, it has an RFID reader built into the pager. So when you sit down at your table, the table has RFID tags stuck on underneath and it will read the ID of your table and transmit that back to the kitchen. So instead of you having to go and pick up your order, they know where you're sitting and they will bring out the order to you. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but this is using the standard Zigbee protocol and you can actually decode it out of the box with this out of tree module GRI triple eight oh two fifteen four. Um, and it's a very elegant, um, elegantly implemented uh, piece of, piece of out-of-tree module software. You can hook up a very simple flow graph like this. And then you can, this is, this is actually at the restaurant with the, the B200 there listening to these two pages. You can simply run it. You can see a packet coming out here, packet data being dumped on the console. And you can also hook it up to Wireshark, which has all the detectors in there already. And then if you look carefully, you can see the numbers there. They match up to the bytes in the packets. And I went back to the kitchen to look at their screen to figure out what table ID I was sitting at and the table IDs are in there as well. So that one's done too. If you want to take a pager hostage, it usually listens for the beacon from the system. If you wanted to take one hostage, you could broadcast your own beacon and then take a hostage. So that's pages. The next thing I'd like to talk about is um, the traffic message channel on FM. If you actually look at the FM broadcast band, this is zooming right into a couple of different stations. And what's so cool is that you can zoom right in there, and I think in the strongest one there, somebody's actually talking. So you can actually see the FM deviation, the frequency deviation, based upon uh, the speech. You know, somebody's talking to a microphone, and it's, it's modulating this, uh, this signal there. Um, so it's, it's kind of cool to, to look in that detail. But RDS, you probably know um, from a radio receiver, you get the station name, the song title, and so on. Um, it's usually on most broadcast FM stations. It's actually transmitted, that information transmitted on a digital subcarrier that you cannot hear. 
uh, with this odd board rate oops, um, that you can see there. And you can decode this again with GNU Radio pretty much out of the box once you set up, compile, and install GRRDS. So in San Francisco, there's this tower called Sutro Tower. It has a whole bunch of FM radio stations transmitting out of there. And I thought it might be interesting to, to listen to one of them and run GRRDS. And so you can see here, it's just plugged in listening. You've got your FM baseband here. This is the radio station. You can see on the left-hand side all of the RDS information scrolling in the console. And then the panel will give you that decoded information like the song name, the genre, and so on. And if you look at the subcarriers, you've got the mono channel, the FM pilot tone, the stereo difference channel so that you can listen to the stereo audio again. And then this one here is the um, BPSK RDS subcarrier that actually conveys all this digital information. So what's interesting about it is that aside from receiving, GRRDS also allows you to transmit. So this isn't a common station name. This is just one that I happen to make up. Um, and then this is the transmitter again in GNU Radio. Here you can see a spectrum that looks very much like what we received, but in this case the software is creating it. So that was, that's kind of cool. But one interesting thing is that, that you don't often see unless you have a dedicated navigation system is the traffic message channel. So it's really neat because it will broadcast information about the state of the roads in your area. So there might be things like traffic congestion, accidents, and so on. It will send out an event code, a location code, and a duration. And so you can have these sorts of events. And if you have a nav system in your car, then it will actually you know, put icons on the map to tell you where road work is, or highlight uh, elements of roadways where there's congestion. So you know, you know what roads to avoid, or if you're using the navigation system, it might calculate a more optimal path. And so if you actually run it, and you filter out all the um, traffic messages, you can see here it's talking about uh, congestion, uh, actually some weather reports, um, average speeds along particular roadways so that your nav system can highlight things appropriately. Uh, but what's interesting is that at least in certain areas of the world, not so much Europe which was interesting, the location codes are encrypted and they're a 16-bit code with 16-bit keys and one key out of a pool of 31 which are encoded and, and placed in the hardware are chosen randomly each day and that key ID is broadcast regularly throughout that day. So your receiver knows which key to use. And so if you look at the actual decoded information, I wrote some additional code to process this. It prints out the key ID there. And then what I had noticed was interesting is that it actually sends out these temperature uh, reports. So I thought, well, you know, if, um, if I'm not going to be able to get any useful location data because it's encrypted and so on, maybe I can just plot the temperatures from, from a couple of places around the barrier and see, see what the temperature looks like throughout the course of a day because I like visualizing things. But I noticed that um, the, the actual temperature values didn't change throughout the course of a day. I thought, hmm, that's, that's pretty strange. So I noticed this pattern. And the pattern was that there are always three unique temperature reports. And when you always had the same, uh, you know, on one particular day, they would always cycle through the same encrypted location and the same fake temperature value. And then the next day, you might have a, you know, obviously a different key, so you get a different location code, but the fake temperature values would still be the same. And then maybe a week later, they would change, but you would have the same key ID that you had maybe a week ago, and so the encrypted location codes would be the same, but the, um, 
the event IDs would be different. So you could, I could see this sort of pattern coming together, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe you can exploit that. So that's what I was just talking about. Once you actually look at it, you can see there that the software that will then pull, look at the messages and then pull out those three unique um, pairs of, of data. And so I won't dwell on this too much, but just to give you a, a, give you a taste, if you imagine time going across from left to right, you have these three unknown locations that are being encrypted. And then you have, on the first day there, you have key number one, and this is in this group where your, uh, your event codes are the same. So what's broadcast over the air are, are the elements of these cells. So you encrypt the location, and then you have this, um, this grouping. And then you can follow that from day to day within the one group period where your key ID will change and your encrypted location will change, but the fake temperature report stays the same. And then you correlate that with the next group, as I was saying, when the key ID will comes back to what you knew before, but the um, bless you, but the um, the location might be different, and so on. So you basically you build up this information over the long period of time. So I would I would take down notes about this every day for many many weeks. Sixteen bits is very short. Um, you could say that well you can do an exhaustive search. You can't just do an exhaustive search because due to the nature of the encryption algorithm, you can get a hell of a lot of um, results. So that doesn't really help you. You need to use some additional information, which is why I went through this process. Um, so you can also use singular events that um, can be correlated from some trusted source. When I say singular events, I think I'm talking about things that don't happen very often. Congestion happens everywhere. You don't often have an object on the road. And you can use this and then look at the RDS output and say, aha, I see this mapping from, from encrypted location to the, this event. I can use this as a, as a known data point. Um, and you can use that to speed up your search process. So once you have all your input data, you can arrange it into this sort of table, where across the top you have these three unknown plain text codes. You have all of your key IDs that you've collected from every day. You have your pairs, where you have your um, encrypted location code. And then the algorithm essentially says, all right, I'm going to generate every single possible key and every single possible plain text location code for this one using these two pairs. And then I'm going to look at the other two on that particular day using that key, and I'm going to start filtering down invalid entries where you have your possible key, you have your possible um, plain text codes, and anything that doesn't match up here I'm going to remove from the pool. And then you repeat that over all the other keys. And essentially, if you look at it this way, you have your possible pool of location, known location codes, possible pool of keys. You go through this iterative algorithm and you cut everything down and then you end up with something like this, where some of, you know, with a relatively, um, you know, not a huge amount of information collected over a course of weeks, you essentially end up recovering keys. Um, and what's also interesting is that even though on some uh, many, obviously many of the encryption IDs haven't recovered all the, you know, just this one single key, there are possible multiple matches. Due to the nature of the encryption algorithm, you can still recover one matching uh, plain text location code um, given the encrypted one. So I thought, I thought that was an interesting result. Um, the only problem is that it kind of re relies on you expediting the search process using these singular events. Unfortunately, the things like vehicle fires and flooding. So I just hope you know everybody was okay. Um, yes, question. 
Yes. Yes. We can talk about that offline. Uh, and I should have said, if you have any questions at any stage, feel free to ask. Or if um, you, know, you don't want to put your hand up, then you can also call me. You, you, you've got my number. Um, all right. So moving on then, aviation radar. If you've been in an airport, you've probably seen one of these big radars spinning there. This is the primary surveillance radar, and then you have this smaller antenna on the top. That's the secondary surveillance radar. So the primary works in the traditional manner. It sends out a very strong pulse, and then it listens to echoes off reflecting objects like planes. And the secondary system sends out an interrogation and re relies on the aircraft having a transponder that will receive that interrogation and actively transmit back a response. So the first one, it, the target can be passive. The second one, the target has to be active. And the way it works with the primary system is that it sends out a very strong pulse called the bang, and then that will hopefully be returned off uh, ob metallic objects like planes because they have a radar cross-section. And they will reflect some of that energy, although very, very weak, which is why the antenna is so large. Uh, and then it will process that as it spins and build up this radar scope. Um, so, the secondary system, who's heard of ADSB and, and tracking planes and all that kind of thing? Yeah. So, this was actually the first project that I did with um, Software Defined Radio many years ago now. ADSB is neat because it actually has a radio on board that transmits the aircraft's position, heading, altitude, vertical rate, flight ID, score code, and, and other information too. And in addition to just ADSB, a typical 747 has 31 radios, which is a hell of a lot. And it makes somebody like me very excited. <laughs> so if you, next time you go traveling and you're just waiting to board the plane, have a look at the plane and the gate next to you and try and spot some of the, these antennas. Quite a few of them are on the top. Um, there's the HF-1 in the tail, and you've got a number of them underneath the aircraft as well. Uh, now, what's interesting about Mode S and ADS-B is that it's transmitting data over the air, but it uses Manchester encoding like that original pager system. So you can see here, here it's called chips. You can have an early chip and a late chip, but essentially it's the same sort of encoding. And that translates to a one or a zero. Once you put that through a decoder, this is um, the one that I made running in real time. These are packets um, being received from all sorts of aircraft all over the, all over the, the place. Um, you can then plot that spatially. This is a, a program I wrote a while back excuse me, called Aviation Mapper. This is uh, flights throughout the Bay Area. Um, sometimes transponders can be broken and send bad information, which is why you see that craft on the right. And we'll get the beautiful rainbow effect in a minute from another plane that has a bad transponder. Wait for it. There we go. Um, but they're all la landing at San Francisco Airport in Oakland and uh, San Jose. And what's cool is that you can build up sort of the map of the flight trails over time. And the color coding there is altitude. So as they come in, you can see that change color. Um, this is actually a close-up of the runways at San Francisco Airport. Um, I went there one night with a, a B-210 and set the system up. Here you can see two planes coming in on a parallel landing. They're green there, These are the actual planes in real life, and they will turn red when the nose gear touches the tarmac. So that's when it's actually touched down. The top one has, the bottom one will just turn red now. So that's when it actually has hit the ground. And you can see them then taxiing back to the terminal. Uh, the other one is actually a takeoff. I, I think this was a, uh, I can't read it, but I think it's version America taking off there. I've sped it up a little bit, obviously. And you can see that it's red because it's on the tarmac, but when the nose uh, lifts up, you'll see it turn green. It's just um, on the takeoff roll there, speeding up. 
And it's so cool because you can watch it and you can see the incredible velocity to which um, the plane will accelerate there. It's just taking off there. And you can see it's following a flight path that it was taken by a plane uh, just previously to that. But look out in the, in the top right corner. You can see it ascending there, the altitude's going up. Oh no, is there somebody coming along? But luckily, they're at 42,000 feet. Uh, and the other one's at 2,400 feet. So there's a bit of vertical separation there. Uh, and the cool thing is you get position and you get altitude. So wouldn't it be cool if you could plot it in real time over the web through Google Earth? Um, and that's that same plane there taking off in, in 3D. Um, this was a system that I set up in Sydney before I moved to America. Um, and I left it there and you can go on the website and, and it will show you the entirety of Sydney airspace. And then apart from that, wouldn't it be cool if in 3D you could have a virtual cockpit view so you, you could be in the pilot seat as if you were taking off. Uh, so that's the same plane there as it takes off into the sky and then swings around north um, to head up the bay. And I think you might be able to see another plane coming in there to Oakland at some point. There's one up there. Yeah, that's San Francisco in there. Um, Treasure Island, so on. So this is actually coming into land, um, coming back from Blacksburg, Virginia, landing at San Francisco Airport, um, lining up for the runway, there we go, boom. And then waiting at the holding point, coming around, and Google Earth did something really weird. It looks like a big fire ripped through San Francisco Airport, and then you're just left with the burnt-out fuselages of planes. Um, and then this was actually now Sydney. So what's interesting is you have ADS-B, but you've also got a different system called ACARS, which is like text messaging for aircraft. And those ACARS messages are shown with those balloons. So every time a plane has a message transmitted to it or transmits a message back, it shows you spatially where that happened with the balloon. And those things might be engine performance reports, flight plans, um, other sort of data, and most of it's plain text and human readable. So you can build up these amazing maps of all of the ACARS message that is sent. And then when some flight plan information is sent out, it will actually have all the waypoints in the system and then plot with these white lines the flight path that that plane is going to take. Um, this is actually close up now on Sydney Airport. You, a lot of ACARS messages are sent um, during takeoff and landing. So you can see there all these little dots will form as planes um, take off and taxi and, and so on. Uh, and then I added this little Easter egg. I always saw errors about the failure of toilets on aircraft. So whenever there's a fault with a with a lavatory, then you get this um, you get this little picture instead of just the dot. That was the little Easter egg there. Um, and then these are actually flight plans that are sent for planes that are going to Western Australia and all the way up into Asia. Um, so that that's a system where the plane is sending out all this. Yes, question. It's not encrypted, no, it's completely open. Yeah, and this has been discussed at length at many conferences for, it seems like eternity. But, I mean, it's fun because you can receive it. Just whatever you do, do not transmit, otherwise you'll be locked away for a very long time. Because, um, I mean, you know, you're, this is a safety critical thing, obviously. Um, but primary surveillance radar, it's a completely passive system. So near where I live and work in the Bay Area, there is actually this... ASR-9, primary surveillance radar, which is common throughout the world, near um, Moffett Field Air Force Base. And that's what it looks like in Google um, Earth. And the picture of the ground, I'm sure you recognize it, you've seen them before. Um, so I thought I'd take a, a B-200 up there and try and receive the signal to see what it actually looked like. 
So you can see here as the radar rotates, um, this left-hand time domain scope is showing you the magnitude of the signal coming back into the radio, and the big bang there is seen on the very left-hand side. And then this is sort of a plot, um, a much slower plot of the bangs as they're sent out because they're sent out at very high frequency. And so you can see every time it points at, at, to the camera, I'll play, just play that bit one more time, you can see this massive increase in amplitude here. I don't know if you just saw that. It'll come around again, wait for it. There we go. And what, what caught my eye is that apart from the bang, you see how there are other little peaks popping up here? I thought, well, they're actually returns off stuff. They're very close in, so it's just ground clutter. But let's take a closer look. So remember, I showed you this before. This was actually the signal that I, I uh, was able to record. So you've got the bang there, and then you seem to have these weaker returns. It's beautiful up there if you're ever in the Bay Area and you want to hang out one evening, feel free to tweet me or whatever kids do these days on social media and, um, and you can head up there, it's quite nice in the evening. I went up there with some friends of mine, we took all this gear up to try and record the signal. Um, this is actually using that 10 gigabit um, interface, so I have my laptop with Thunderbolt and um, it's using that X300. Unfortunately the Thunderbolt connector on my laptop failed, so my friend there is basically sacrificing his hand trying to push the connector and hold it in there to maintain the link because you know it, you have to have it there from boot otherwise your device drops off the PCI Express bus. Um, and this is a, a sort of nice homage back to the early days, this is my friend back in Australia, we're above Sydney Airport receiving the ADS-B stuff. Um, so as you can see uh, we don't like to travel light. Um, but once you actually record the signal, I wrote a little bit of software to process the signal. Um, I won't go through the details there, but these are histograms of the magnitude. So you select some, some parameters to look at the strong signals and then determine the, the pulse repetition rate, the length of the pulses. This is actually a bang here, many, many bangs that are synchronized now and overlaid on top of one another. And you can see some interesting stuff happening after that in time. And then this radar is interesting because it fires off the bangs at two different rates. It's called a dual PRF, dual pulse repetition frequency radar. And you can see those patterns very clearly there. So you program that in as well with this histogram. These are, gives you, give you clues as to the, P, to the two PRFs. One's I think 945 hertz and the other one's 1,250 hertz. Um, and then once you program all these parameters in there, you iteratively build it up and then you start tracking the amplitude. So every time you have one of these big peaks, that's when the radar has rotated and is pointing at you, which is why the signal is so strong. So you have, what, six revolutions of the radar, seven revolutions of the radar in this capture. And by the way, this is capturing on this, um, on, on this B210 at 50 mega samples per second over USB 3 into RAM disk. So on my laptop, I think I had eight gigs of RAM, it would fill up in less than 30 seconds. So just to give you an idea about the sheer, um, you know, torrent of data that's coming in there. So if you actually look at these pulses in the time domain synchronized over time, the software has now synchronized to the revolution and the, and the transmission rate of the radar, you get this. The bang there is at the beginning, and then you have these um, reflections coming back. So once you plot that then in a raster plot, here time is going on the vertical axis, and each scan line is triggered by a bang from the radar. So every time the software hears the bang, it will start recording for the length of this scan line and then plot the energy that comes back, that it hears back from any of the returns. So what's interesting is that you can see these, these patterns start to form. And I was thinking, well, you know, what's, what's this 
curved pattern here and there's this dot out there, what could that possibly be? Well, if you unwrap it and actually put it on the map where the radar is at the center and you align things appropriately, then you can see that it actually fits with real physical features in the Bay Area. So I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what these dots were. And then I looked at the map and as it turns out, there are power pylons that crisscross all over the Bay Area and they were actually reflecting the radar energy back into the radio. And you can see that the, these points line up perfectly where the pylons actually are. The other hotspots here are sort of larger buildings around the Bay Area. And then further out, you can see we have two bridges there and those bridges are also reflecting some energy. So this is great, it's, it's kind of working. And the other thing to keep in mind is that this entire thing, I'm just receiving with a whip antenna like this, hooked up to the board. This is not a special high gain antenna or, or anything like that. And the next step is obviously to get a better antenna. Um, but if you were to plot out six of the revolutions, what you can do is you can take the first one, put that into an image as the red channel, take one of the middle ones, put it in as the green channel, take the last one, put it in as the blue channel. And so you would get this black and white picture. And if everything is stationary, it will come out as white. But if something's moving, any guesses to what you'll see? What? Colors, right. So there's no color in this one. But if you look at this one, there's some color there. You have this RGB triplet. I thought, oh, wow, something's actually moved. Uh, and in this one, again, I found something else. It was a weaker return because it's further out, but something moved. If you unwrap it onto the map, um, then it's a little bit difficult to see there, but it's just at the edge of the bay, and it was on a road. And I think, it, judging from the speed, you, know, you can calculate that roughly from the rotation rate and so on. I think it was a large truck, because if a large truck was moving, it's got quite a large radar cross-section on the side, and it would have reflected some of the energy at that rate. Obviously, I would like to pick up airplanes taking off from San Jose Airport, but without a really good directional antenna pointing in that direction, it's probably unlikely I'll be able to pick it up with a little whip antenna. But that's the next stage of the project. Um, apart from just using primary radar to do this sort of your own, create your own virtual passive radar system, you can also use other very powerful signals. And just to give you a quick taste, this is something new that I'm working on. This is using ATSC, which is America's version of DVB-T. So this is the, the American digital TV system. If you think about it, digital TV transmitters are everywhere and they transmit very powerful signals. So this is what the spectrum looks like. And if you try and find returns off particular objects, you might be able to use it as a bit of a radar system. And this has been done before with DVB-T and other systems, but I'm just having a go. Um, this is the pseudo noise PN code that's actually embedded in the signal that happens at regular intervals to demarcate the field sync so that a receiver can synchronize the signal. Um, and it happens at regular intervals, as you can see there, with these correlation peaks. If you then synchronize, and you can see you get this great correlation peak for that particular PN sequence in your received signal. If you plot that over time, then you get this, again, this beautiful peak. Uh, and then this is the sort of viewing Google Earth from my friend's place. And we, we want to test this out for multipath, which is basically where you have a receiver and you have different sort of land features that will reflect the same signal, but over a slightly different distance. So at the receiver, you will hear the same signal arrive at slightly different points in time. And the receiver has to filter then and, f and listen to only one signal. So there's a hill here and there's also a hill further out there, which means that when the signal's coming from the transmitter further back behind us, it's going to hit this hill first, come back, 
and then this signal from the reflected off the hill in the, in the distance will arrive a little bit later. So people talk about multipath, but I thought this was a really good visualization of it. So you can see here, my friend is actually holding the antenna and pointing it at the first hill and then slowly moving it around to the other hill with time going down here. So you can see the first um, correlation peak is really strong because he's looking at, at the closer hill. And then as he turns around, the signal becomes stronger from the hill in the distance, which is this one that becomes lighter there. But it's offset in time. So if this is like T0 in the middle, then this is the delayed signal because the time is going along the bottom there. And then I thought, well, what happens if you actually, instead of you know, using the hills, you sit in the car and you drive from San Francisco down into the South Bay and record the, the spectrum every so often, you know, you'll have hills and whatever moving because you're essentially moving yourself. You're flipping the problem around. And I think this is some very initial analysis, but instead of being a straight line here, some of them are curved ever so slightly because I'm moving. And so the distance um, the, the, the total distance the signal takes as it's reflecting off things will change. So it's just a bit of initial work there. Um, now, let me look at the time. I might sort of skip this bit a, a little bit so for the sake of time, but um, you've got these fast track tags and so on. These are used for electronic um, toll booths as you're driving around, you know, you don't have to pay. You just go through the booth and it reads your account off here and then subtracts money from your account. Um, this is a completely unencrypted system and it uses interrogation signal at 900 megahertz and backscatter modulation. It, backscatter means that the tag itself does not transmit a signal back. It simply changes the load on the antenna inside the device and the radar cross-section of your tag will change. So the reader is constantly sending a signal and then your, your uh, tag will, will actually receive that interrogation, change the antenna load and then the receiver will actually detect that subtle change in your tag and decode the data from that. It's really cool. And it means that the receiver in the, in the tag and the transmitter can be really simple. It just has a one long life battery inside it. Um, so I was curious as to what these antennas were on, for on, on these power poles. Turned out it was this system. So I took my Yagi antenna, recorded the signal in the car, looked very inconspicuous as I was pointing it at the toll booths on the Golden Gate Bridge, trying to um, sample the signal there. And then this is, again, what you get. You get your wake-up signal that wakes the tag up, the preamble, the actual payload that says, hey, what's your ID? Very much like the Manchester encoded system in Modes, funnily enough. And then you have this backscatter carrier, which is just a single unmodulated carrier that will hit the device, have it, it, it uh, modulated, and then the return will be detected by the original reader. Uh, I'll skip that. But um, essentially, this is the GNU radio flow graph, you can see there um, the backscatter carrier there is unmodulated, but when I put my tag in the radio, then suddenly it becomes modulated and the, and the system will read the ID out. Um, and so if you look at it in the video, you can see just as a simple test through a windshield, put the tag behind there, got the antenna, and as soon as you hold it up there, and then it, it picks up the tag ID. And, and this is, you know, you can you could put one on an overpass and then read everybody's tags as they drive underneath. Uh, or you could follow people around, or you could spoof the tag and pretend to be somebody else. Um, this is the flow graph. Um, another thing you can do is, is use a um, similar system to look at wireless... Um, Entry, you know, uh, uh, for um, vehicles, this is a Toyota Prius. 
Um, the Prius is constantly broadcasting a challenge and when the owner has their remote control it picks up this challenge and then broadcasts something back over VHF that unlocks the car. It's a really neat system. But you can use SDR then to actually look at the protocol and look at the actual raw, raw bits and then do some security analysis if you feel that way inclined. Uh, this was cool though because the radio was a dual channel radio so it's recording the low frequency challenge from the car and the response from the, the remote control at the same time and so when you collect the data together like that then you can actually look at them together and see if there's any interesting patterns in the timing. Uh, and then I also looked at the secure um, badge system that we have in the building and again it's a similar system to the fast track tag, there's the reader, um, it sends out a, a challenge and then the, the badge has this backscatter thing as well and then it responds and then you could do some analysis on that too if you wanted to. So just to conclude then, um, remember we had that lonely space probe flying through space, it had completed its mission, NASA had thrown out all of the equipment that it had used to communicate with it because of funding and the mission was over. So it was headed on its way back to Earth and I think somebody asked, you know when I asked you what the spectrum was, somebody said the telemetry, who was that? Yeah, yeah, so there's the telemetry. That's actually the telemetry from the, the, from the space probe. Um, and so an unlikely mob got together and thought, well, maybe we can reboot this old space probe and use it for science again, turn the science instruments back on and bring it back into orbit around the Earth with NASA's blessing. So this was the sort of orbit that it went through and it would return to Earth around about 2014, this year. There was a bit of time pressure because although there, we thought there was still fuel on board, to actually bring it back into orbit around the Earth, you'd have to burn the thrusters, and there's only a limited amount of fuel, and so the closer you get, um, you know, you will have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of fuel to make that trajectory connect correction maneuver. If you wait too long, you won't have enough fuel and you won't be able to bring it back into orbit. So we sort of had this hard deadline. This is sort of over time, the amount of fuel that you would need to burn to make that same maneuver. Now, this space probe's out there, how do you talk to it? Well, Naturally, you use the biggest radio telescope on the planet. This is Arecibo, uh, the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico, because it's just got such an incredibly huge gain. Um, and just to give you a sense of scale there, that's the complete thing. And then these are my colleagues. Um, and it's just the scale of the place is, is just incredible. This is um, standing on, pl on the platform above the actual dish looking down. Um, a lot of the infrastructures housed in this thing called the dome, like their... Um, they're megawatt clastrons that are used for S-band radar work. Um, so long story short, we used GNU Radio open source um, implementation, uh, open source software to actually write a modem that NASA originally used to talk to the probe, but we created, recreated it because you know, NASA didn't have it anymore. So we looked at the documentation, put together this modem, hooked it up to the Arecibo radio telescope through the patch panel using these USRPs. And we managed to send a command to turn the telemetry back on. Because up till now, we'd just seen a little carrier. And this is the really, really weak carrier here. Um, and then with a bit of pointing, you know, moving the dish around, searching the sky, we managed to make it a, a much stronger signal. Here we're sending the commands out, and I'm just using this B200 here to check that the commands are really going out into the sky. Because, th of course, the radiation is going to go off the sides as well. I'm just picking it up here with the antenna. And then, sort of the moment of truth, That was when that unmodulated carrier suddenly became modulated with the telemetry from the space probe. So that was, a, that was a big milestone in the project. We turned them on for both transponders and you can see them um, being received there for, through the radio telescope, through the two USRPs. Um, and then 
Um, the next step was to look at the propulsion system, send the commands up to fire the thrusters. Um, this is actually the telemetry at, a, at the slow 16 board rate. Um, and then we, you can increase the rate as your link looks better. 64 bits per second. You can see that it'll come up there. I know I'm running short on time, so I'll just... We usually use 512, that's what it sounds like. And it sends a repeating frame, so if you listen, there'll be this, this pattern to it. So this is a new radio, and I'll just finish up by showing you what the telemetry screen looks like. You can download the, the telemetry software from, from my GitHub. Unfortunately, the, the project has a sad ending. Um, and then you can go at 2K as well. So we tried to find the thrusters. This is the accelerometer values that come back. And unfortunately, we would have the first thrust and we got a good response from the accelerometer. And then after that, we got nothing. So we tried multiple times, all the different combination of thrusters on board didn't work out. What happened was, we presume, is that there was plenty of fuel on board, but nitrogen, which is a pressurant to push the fuel out of the tanks at the top, down into the thrusters, over the 30 years, somehow disappeared from the tanks. So try as we might, we couldn't, couldn't get it to work. So it's gone back out to orbit the sun. Um, Google made a nice website, Spacecraft for All, if you're interested in checking that out. Um, and that's the team. And that's the end of the talk. Thank you very much for listening. And that's what we we're talking about, folks. Software defined radio. I mean, come on. What else can we say? Now, what we want you to do is go run and get one and try it out and let us know what you think. And uh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. no i'm just being smart ass hey uh seriously folks though uh sdr is, is really fun uh it, it's it, it's recaptivated my imagination uh in, in radio and uh you know and every every other every other aspect uh even our, even our website is uh you know has uh distinct uh, nods to the uh, the rf days yeah uh, and so if you're clever enough if you're clever enough hacker you'll understand what i'm talking about all right, so uh, I think we've wasted uh, almost two hours of everyone's time. What else do we have? Um, one quick thing, and I can't remember if this was in the talk or not, because it was, it was such a good talk. But forgive me if this yep. was mentioned, but with SDR, you can visibly monitor someone else's screen. 
from afar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought I would bring that out because it, it's extremely cool. Yeah, and it is extremely scary. And the thing is, though, however, your screen or your monitor's refresh rate has to be sixty hertz. If it's above sixty hertz, it's eh, it doesn't work. Yeah, but I believe it, it has to be sixty hertz. Well, it used to be. Now, now you can you, you can go all the way. You can you can uh, mimic the entire spectrum pattern. So you can go up to 240 hertz and it wouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, that's, Crash is right. Uh, You can literally monitor someone's uh, computer with an SDR. We're not going to tell you how to break those laws, but you can do it. And it's been proven in a proof of concept. And, you know, listen, folks, we're not telling you to use SDRs to transmit illegally or illegally eavesdrop on, on your boyfriend or girlfriend's laptop while they're using it or even their phone for that matter. But what you should, what you should do is take the knowledge that you learn from these SDR uh, follies that you will ultimately wind up falling in and use that, use that information to build something cool with. And I, I think crash as crash and myself have given you enough primers to take SDR and make it into something exceptionally special. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's great. I think SDR is a, a really good future movement for radio in general. I see yeah. it as perhaps even the renaissance of radio itself. Because as far as I'm aware, radio is really not much of a thing anymore. I mean, you have XM and you know satellite and all that crap, but no one really uses FM or AM or or really just the radio frequencies in general to do anything cool other than you know your ham radio operator who's you know of course talking to another operator but you know and that's obviously really cool don't get me wrong i I absolutely (laughs) adore that but you know it's radio kind of went uh on the back burner for a while so i i I feel like this is going to be a good revival for it I, I couldn't agree more, man. You know, and it not only not only can you use SDR for all of the things that we mentioned. There's also a lot of things that are haven't not even been discovered yet for the uses of SDR. Oh yeah. You know, just imagine, folks, uh, actually creating an infra- a computer-based infrastructure where uh, you know where you know you don't need to connect to the internet. You can use SDR in, in place of the uh, internet for your network to survive and manage uh, sustainability and security. Yeah without connecting to the internet. So uh, I'm not going to tell you how to build a wireless uh, connected SDR infrastructure, but I believe that uh, now you have the tools and the knowledge to head in that direction and take SDR to the next level. And we'd like to see that. And uh, hopefully we will. Yeah. Man, it's been a, you know, I'm not used to doing the show on the weekdays, man. It's kind of weird. It's kind of strange. Yeah, it's, it's a little whatever. bit weird. But, but so uh, are we. You know, so, yeah, yeah, who isn't weird? Goes. All right. I think that's about it for the show. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, unless you have anything else, I don't have anything else other than to everyone to just take care, be kind, love, care, and share. And uh, yeah. And don't forget to heed that advice, folks. I couldn't agree more. And with that, we are out of here. here. And until next month, uh, next month, until next week, <laughs> we'll talk to you then. Please use your skills for something good. Smile and stay on the right side of law, folks. Don't fuck up. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Until then, that's that. Peace. <laughs> we'll see you then. Talk to you later. Bye.